Hello and welcome to this podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion Series. My hmm. name's Dr. Jefferson, and today my guest is Mr. David Fitzsimons. David is one of the speech pathologists in the Cleft Palate Clinic at the Children's Hospital, Westmead, Sydney. He specialises in the assessment and treatment of children with velopharyngeal insufficiency and other cleft and craniofacial related disorders. He has been a past president of the Australasian Cleft Lip and Palate Association and is the current chairman of the Australasian Cleft Lip and Palate Education Fund. He's also an active member of the American Cleft Palate Craniofacial Association. It's a pleasure to talk to you today, David. How are you? Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining me. Our topic today is going to be assessment of the cleft palate patient. To begin with, how common is it for you to see children with cleft lip and palate conditions? In Australia, children are born with cleft lip and palate at a rate of about 1 in 750, 700 to 750 live births, um, which is a pretty common condition, and most of those kids will come to one of the three tertiary referral hospitals our one is the largest one. So we would get about 100 new babies with cleft lip and palate come through each year. In addition to that, we, in our, in our cleft palate team here in our unit, and this is common for most cleft palate teams, they would also get a similar number of children present with other related problems, uh, such as a suspected submucous cleft or velopharyngeal insufficiency. And it's common to see children referred for uh, something like the velocardiofacial syndrome, which People are now referring to as 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome. So you do, you, you'll seem to end up seeing somewhere in the vicinity of 200 odd unique patients each year. So just on the note of cleft lip and palate, is the lip important? Does the, having a cleft lip impact on management from a speech and language point of view? It doesn't really affect things uh, to that extent. Um, it's certainly very easy. Parents will get quite worried when they have a baby with a cleft lip and some of them will come in and say, gee, I wish I had a cleft palate. But the cleft lip really doesn't cause us the problems with speech and certainly with hearing that we see in children with cleft palate. It's the reason why cleft palate clinics are often called cleft palate clinics and not cleft lip clinics. Uh, so it certainly doesn't get um, a big waiting in our clinic here. The surgeons obviously do the normal management and the dentist, if the dentition's affected through the, and if there's an alveolar cleft, for example, the orthodontists get involved. But really from a speech point of view, it doesn't affect us uh, too much. So do you get children of different age ranges coming into the clinic? Yeah, and that reflects uh, certainly their original condition. So the children with cleft palate, obviously, when they're born, they'll come through the clinic. And as a speech pathologist, we start seeing them from six months of age. Uh, that's been a move we've done recently. So some units wouldn't do that. Some units probably do that already. We've only just started doing this, um, seeing kids very, very early, which almost before they've started to talk to, to get their babbling right and get them sort of moving in the right direction. Uh, it's a new thing for us. Uh, obviously, children born, so children who are referred later will be children with submucous clefts or suspected submucous clefts that weren't picked up early on. Uh, children age two and three with the 22Q deletion syndrome, those kids will come in a bit later. We don't usually get kids referred to see us after about six or seven years of age, though. Now, I've heard this term cleft palate speech. What is that? Cleft palate speech is, is an umbrella term that is used to refer to the common characteristics or findings that, that are seen in individuals affected by cleft palate or children with velopharyngeal insufficiency. And there are several components to it. One thing you'll often see, which is a little bit misleading in journal articles, articles is people refer to the entire cleft palate speech issue as being hypernasality. So 
The word hypernasality on its own is often used as a synonym for velopharyngeal insufficiency, for example. But cleft palate speech encompasses the problems of velopharyngeal insufficiency, including disorders like hypernasality and nasal emission, as well as other phonological problems that the children have that are related to their cleft. So there are, there are more than just those, uh, that hypernasality, more than just that nasal component that these kids have. And the, the patterns are quite well known and quite well understood. You mentioned hyper and hyponasality. What, what is that? Can you describe that for us? Yeah, it's, I mean, anytime you have voicing that's produced at the larynx, it creates a, um, a this turns back to the, um, source filter theory of voice production. So the vocal folds vibrate, you get voicing, and it resonates through the oral cavity, resonates through the nasal cavity, and certain languages, uh, have different degrees of what is normal to be, what is a normal degree of nasality, so to speak. And when there's increased or excessive nasality, in a particular language, we refer to that as hypernasality. So if I was to say to you the word P, B, and D, those three words, uh, in my mind at least, listening talking to you, they sound okay to me. If I was to make them hypernasal, P, B, and D, it would be P, D, T. I can't even remember the words I just said them. P, that's not important. So you'll get an increased resonance come through uh, increased nasal resonance in that regard. And hyponasal is the opposite. So an ENT surgeon listening to this recording would be very familiar with the hyponasal child who came in with a reduction of nasal resonance. So they would sound more like, instead of saying the word money, for example, it might be buddy, where they sound quite congested and, re- and, and blocked off. What about uh, the difference between nasal emission and nasal turbulence? Yeah, nasal emission and nasal turbulence is a... They're both disorders where you have actual nasal airflow, or we call abnormal nasal airflow, coming through the villopharyngeal port when they shouldn't be there. So one of the big questions you could ask is the difference between hypernasality and nasal emission. Uh, hypernasality is that resonance disorder. Nasal emission nasal turbulence are abnormal airflow that accompanies the production of the sound. So if you were to say puppy dog and produce it with nasal airflow, you might it might come out like puppy dong, puppy. Because you've got a uh, amount of air lost through the nose at the same time, the P's are much weaker. It's like having a petrol tank that's got a leak in it. So puppy dong. And when it's soft like that, puppy, it's usually not always, but usually indicated it's usually indicates, I should say, there's a bit of a larger open villopharyngeal port. When you when it's there's quite a small port there's increased, the same amount of airflow through a smaller port creates a bit more turbulence and you get what we call nasal turbulence. So, we can hear that little scrape sound. And people will call that nasal scrapes and nasal snorts and a whole range of other things. And to be, to be, you know, physiologically accurate, nasal emission, nasal turbulence, it's all turbulent, otherwise you wouldn't hear it. So really the distinction from an ENT point of view is, is this just a tone or a resonance thing? Ping, ping, ting. Or is this a pumping? You can actually hear airflow coming through. So whilst we're on uh, demystifying a lot of these uh, speech pathology terms, what about plosives, fricatives, voiceless sounds, voice sounds? What Can we put it together? Yeah, these are all particular words that speech pathologists um, use to name all the sounds, and it makes us feel very important because 
ENTs will give us these lovely letters with all your fancy conditions and we try and bamboozle you with all this stuff. Mission accomplished. <laughs> it's true. But explosive, you know, like the word explosive or explosion is a short sound. So p, b, t, d, k, and g. It's a sound where there has to be pressure built up. Um, a fricative has frication to it. They're longer sounds where the airflow or the airstream is released over a certain amount of time. And speech pathologists use those sounds to shape other sounds. So we might, if a child has a, uh, a plosive, for example, we might teach them to release it more slowly to get a fricative. And there are these relationships between sounds allow us to do this. One of the big relationships that we do find between sounds that we use a lot, particularly in cleft palate therapy, is the idea of voiceless and voiced sounds. So, um, all sounds tend to come in what we call sound pairs. So, for example, a P sound, as in the word um, Peter, that P sound, doesn't have any vocal fold vibration. It's just airflow coming up, being held by the lips, and then P released in a plosive sound. The same or the equivalent sound would be a B sound, where the same thing, the airflow is held behind the lips, but at the same time there is actually vibration in the chords. So a B sound. The relevance of that for us in cleft palate therapy is we often get that so there are more particular elements of cleft palate speech present on various sounds than others. So we know that hypernasality more often occur or it only occurs on voiced sounds, for example, it doesn't occur on voiceless. And it's very easy to perceive nasal emission or nasal turbulence on voiceless sounds. So we construct our assessments in the same way. What investigations help you in your assessment of the cleft palate patient? Yeah, we do, there's a number of investigations we use. Obviously, um, some things that you'd often see in a tertiary referral hospital like this would be video fluoroscopy um, and video nasendoscopy. And video fluoroscopy in our unit traditionally has been very highly used, and we like using video fluoroscopy. Uh, as you can, as you would know, it's a, the same sort of procedure you'd use for a uh, they use in modified barium swallows or swallow stop coordination study. And we get a very good overall look of the velopharyngeal mechanism, particularly from the side or lateral view. We do have to put a little bit of barium uh, in the nose to highlight um, sort of where the soft palate ends and where the adenoids begin, particularly for closure. But it gives us a, a very good view that's particularly useful for young children who won't tolerate nasendoscopy. Uh, the equipment we have in our unit is very, very good, and we can zoom right in and reduce radiation. But there would certainly be units around the world who would steer well clear of video fluoroscopy, not use unless they had to, and would prefer to get the very accurate pictures of nasendoscopy, which, as you know, from an ENT point of view, gives you, if, as long as it's successful, you can get through the patient cooperation issues, gets you a very good three-dimensional view of the villopharyngeal port. So in an ideal world, it would be great to get video nasendoscopy images on all the children. There's no radiation involved, and you get to see the entire mechanism closing as one. Some children have speech that, you know, you don't need to do that for other children. You know, we, we wouldn't do any procedures without having, you know, as many imaging as, as much imaging as we've got. So if I have a patient with cleft palate or even someone that I'm concerned about the palatal function and I send them uh, requesting a speech therapy trial, what, what does that mean? Yeah, speech therapy trial is, is very important, we think. Uh, and there are the, to, to a speech pathologist who work, works on a cleft palate team, as you mentioned the word demystifying before, we that's our job. You know, at the end of the day, all we do is listen to air out the kid's nose and we listen to the speech that comes out of his mouth. And in most cases of speech pathologists, it's not that difficult. 
But the issue here is when these kids are probably among the group that can be the most difficult. So it's, it's, I sound as I've just contradicted myself there, but it's pretty straightforward. But there are times you say, I've seen what that child can do. I think I can get that child better. And when you look at the alternative treatment, which might be, you know, an obstructive operation, such as a pharyngoplasty, it's kind of, this is the wrong word, but it's kind of unfair to commit a child to surgery without having a really good speech therapy trial um, under his belt. And sometimes you will, this is not a criticism of community therapists, but community therapist who hasn't been trained or is experienced in, in the, um, the treatment of cleft palate speech, you know, you sometimes want to say, look, I know you've done a really good job and we've helped you and that sort of stuff. I just want to have another quick go here and see if we can do that. So I think from an ENT point of view, when you're getting your referral for these for these kids and you're being asked to the, to in, to engage in some sort of management issues, I really think getting that information from the therapist about the speech therapy uh, is very important. What did they do that worked? What did they do that didn't work? And um, where are they going next with it? So do all kids with cleft palate need uh, speech therapy involvement? Look, they don't all need it because you'll certainly get a kid who disappears and is lost to follow-up and comes back 10 years later and sounds fantastic and you sort of wonder what he did or he went. But I think all children need to be monitored, ideally, because we don't... There's no real relationship between things like the width of the cleft and um, the amount of speech every child may have, so you can't really predict which child's going to need it. We would certainly, in our unit here, we're getting more and more into the prevention side of things, and we've got a new staff member now to try and get the kids in at six months of age to start them off on therapy, so that by the time they get to 12 months of age, they're, they're really doing the right sounds the anterior front plosive sounds. I know anterior and front's the same word. The anterior plosive sounds. We want some of those sounds at the front, and, and they're good predictors of later performance in speech. We've talked about the importance of speech therapy involvement. How important is hearing to their speech and language development? Hearing is incredibly important, and I'm not just saying that because you're an ENT surgeon, but Thank it's it, it is important. I mean, humans are like parrots where... You know, we listen and we learn from listening, and that's very, very important, particularly as the children get into things like preschool and, and school, where a, a small loss or a unilateral loss uh, or a fluctuating loss in a quiet therapy environment like my office here, I can get by that because I'm up close to the patient, they're looking at my visual cues, and I can get around that. But, you know, a unilateral loss, as you know, the child has to then try and triangulate where does that sound come from and it, it really throws things off particularly the home practice and the, and the generalization of the therapy gains that we've made. The hearing's obviously important another ENT intervention adenoids how important are the adenoids? Look we need the adenoids in there obviously to do their job but then I suppose from adenoidectomy perspective we um, we need to make sure that a child who is at risk of having post-adenoidectomy velopharyngeal insufficiency they're the children that would be we sort of worried about and i think that's a that can be a tricky thing you might have a child with an occult submucous cleft or a child with a cleft sorry with a palate that just doesn't look quite right uh, well there's other indications that you think look i just want to be careful and that's when procedures like video fluoroscopy and nasodoscopy can be handy just to sort of give us a bit of an idea of how much reserve we've got uh, in a particular patient but uh, we are certainly, as a credit to ENTs, we're seeing less and less patients with post-adenoidectomy VPI. The ENTs certainly seem to be looking and, and are becoming certainly more aware of the possible problems you can get. 
What would you say is the long-term outlook for a child with uh, a cleft palate in relation specifically to their speech-language development? I think as long as the child has not got any other major significant factors affecting them, such as you know a developmental delay or or you know something like a sensory neural hearing loss that's quite significant, um, as long as the children are monitored by a cleft palate team and receive appropriate early intervention, they should have a very good very good chance of normal speech. And I think that that it brings up a very key point about team. Many patients will be out there in the private sector getting private treatment and the best possible thing, but it's been known for many years that the best treatment, and I think it's in fact the motto for the American Cleft Palate Association, that, that it takes a team. It's very much a team is what is needed to help children with cleft palate. There are things that I do not understand about the hearing, but I'm smart enough to have at least identify that I don't know what's wrong, but there's something wrong with that child's teeth or their hearing or something. And that's where teamwork is invaluable. So as long as they're being managed by a team and get appropriate early intervention, they should have a very good outcome for speech. In simplistic terms, having seen uh, the wide range both within and outside a team, what are some of the commoner mistakes that you see in the management of cleft palate children? I think the common mistake that we find is the distinction between the very specific components of speech that a speech pathologist thrive on, so something like hypernasality, a nasal omission, and a backing pattern or something, and the very general terms that parents and surgeons, for example, understand with things like intelligibility and distinctiveness. So to give an example, a patient, I can tell a patient their child is mildly hypernasal, they have some mild nasal omission on particular sounds, and they have a, a moderate voice disorder and they've got, um, you know, any, any, some other sort of phonological process. And when you explain that to a patient, they correctly look at you and say, fantastic, you've obviously done a wonderful job assessing the child, but what does it mean to me? What is the impact of this? And I suppose that's what we have to get better at, where we say, yes, the child has all these things, but what is the impact of that on the patient? I know the child's had a nasendoscopy. I know there's bubbles of air coming through. But really, for that particular child, does that child really need to have more surgery? Or given everything else in the child's makeup, is this problem really affecting how they sound? Is it affecting their intelligibility? And I think we need to bring things back to that. I think we need to have, you know, not just jumping, oh, my God, this child sounds a bit nasal today. Okay, well, there's probably a reason for it. And... I know it's nasal, yes it is nasal, but what is, what's the impact of this? Yes, we've diagnosed it correctly, it's hypernasal, it's mild, but what is the, you know, what's the problem we're trying to fix here? If that makes sense. What are the future therapeutic possibilities in relation to uh, management of these patients? I think from a speech pathology point of view, one thing that we have been trialling is intensive speech therapy. I mentioned a couple of times the early intervention, I think that's certainly, um, yeah, an absolute key in not only cleft palate speech, but all aspects of speech pathology. You you can pull your hair out asking government and authorities just to try and say we must see these kids early. The earlier the better. That's absolutely crucial. But I think we're seeing more and more work now intensively, um, where you might bring a child in for say you know five sessions in a week or two or three sessions in a day. It it, it almost seems to be you could see a child on a Monday and they have a wonderful session. They'll forget it Tuesday, Wednesday that's a shopping night, Thursday they watch TV, they do a bit of work on Saturday, but they're really back where they were again on the Monday. And I think giving the kids 
You, know, you take antibiotics every day for a reason. You don't take antibiotics once a month. You take them regularly. And I think speech pathology will find over time, I, I suspect that we'll have reduced um, amount of effort or reduced occasions of service or reduced amount of intervention if we get some of these kids can be can be fixed a little bit quickly by doing intensive therapy. The other benefit is it keeps kids out of therapy and no one wants to be in therapy for five years. If you could be in therapy for two years rather than five, everyone would do that. You know, so I think intensive therapy is something that is getting a little bit more airtime at the moment and we're certainly trying to do some of that here. Well David, thank you very much. It's been a it's been a great discussion uh, on the topic. One thing I like to do as we finish is the final word and that's an opportunity for you to either highlight something that we've covered in the course of the discussion or maybe mention something that we haven't covered which is important. So I'll hand it over to you for the final word. Sure. I think the, the biggest issue that we, we face when it comes to listening to speech is that you listen to, it's like listening to a song and you listen to a song and someone said, well, what did you think of the you know, the electric guitar in there? Could you hear it? And you've got to try and dissect all the sounds out of it and it's very difficult to do. And cleft palate speech is certainly no different. The issue we face is one of the, one of the things that is very important and it's relatively easy to understand, certainly to our to our mind, is the difference between nasal air emission or nasal airflow, nasal turbulence that accompanies a sound or replaces a sound. So if I was to try and demonstrate a, an S sound, a S, where there's nasal emission accompanying the sound, that's probably more nasal turbulence there, more like a nasal scrape, but you should be able to hear the S sound and the nasal turbulence, and that's accompanying the sound. So when you say to a child, you've got to do your S sound correctly, arguably he already has. He's done an S sound. He has a leak at the same time. All things being equal, he's going to need some sort of management by the cleft part team. Alternatively, the other child who presents to you who is replacing his speech sounds with this nasal escape or nasal turbulence. So instead of saying a word like, it might be um, stop, and he might go, stop. That first sound, there's no S sound there at all. He's replaced that entire sound. And again, there are exceptions to every rule, but all things being equal, that child has mislearned that behaviour, highly likely in that situation, and just needs speech therapy. So... Really, one of the things that is very important from a speech pathologist's point of view for listening and from an ENT's point of view for listening is to, you know, if you've only listened to one thing on this little podcast, is just to think, is that sound accompanying the speech sound or replacing the speech sound? Because the management is very, very different. That brings to an end this discussion on uh, the management of cleft palate. Uh, you can find this and other podcasts uh, at iTunes at ENT Expert Opinion. Uh, you can also find us on Stitcher. Uh, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And, of course, you can contact us at entexpertopinion at gmail.com. Thanks very much. Music.